Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. So, in times like this, where do we find our refuge? We find our refuge in God. Right now, we are physically distanced from many people that we love. I can't even visit my own mom on Mother's Day. It's just the way it is. Um, But we're not distanced from God. God is near. God is here. God knows, and God cares. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. That's what James says. And of course, it's true, but if we, if we look a little bit under the surface, really what's happening is as we draw near to God, we're not, we're not attracting God. Rather, we are we are placing ourselves in a position to be aware of the infinite nearness of God. You are never far away from God. God is the ground of being. In Him we live and move and have our being. But it's as we deliberately draw near to God that we are awakened to that infinite sense of the nearness of God. So how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? Well, that's what prayer is. Prayer is the drawing near to God that we might now become awake to the infinite nearness of God. Uh, Prayer is the practice of drawing near to God. And I'm going to do an online prayer school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. I'll give you the details at the end of the service. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, God, if you say God, you know, G-O-D, God, God, is, God is abstract. God is a concept. God is the vaguest allusion to ultimate transcendence. If we say God, there's an you know, I suppose an infinite amount of ideas that people could have in their mind about what is meant by God. It's Jesus who gives definition to God. It's Jesus who is the perfect revelation of God. It's Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, that is the icon of the invisible God. So the Bible points us to Jesus, but it's Jesus alone who perfectly reveals God. It's Jesus alone who is the perfect Word of God. We can say it this way, and you can say it with me because you know it. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this. But now we do. So, John 14 comes from the upper room discourse. The evening of the Last Supper. Jesus with His disciples one more time before His suffering. And 
At one point, Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, how can you say to me, show me the Father? I've been showing you the Father for as long as you've known me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is one of the climactic moments in John's gospel because this is part of John's. I would say it's maybe his main agenda is to reveal to us that to encounter Christ is to encounter God. To know Jesus is to know God. To understand Jesus is to understand what God is like. You know, John begins his gospel with that poetic prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the logic of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and apart from Him nothing was made that was made. And then we're told, in the middle of that poetic prologue, and the Word became flesh. The Word was made a human being. The Word came into the world as Jesus of Nazareth. And then he ends that poetic prologue by saying this, No one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, He has made Him known. Jesus then says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Jesus is saying, There's plenty of room for everyone in my Father's house. In His life, death, and resurrection, Jesus leads us to the Father's house. He's gathering all of humanity into the Father's house because there's plenty of room for everyone. You don't have to to worry about the Father's house being too crowded and there's no more room. Jesus says, no, no, there's there's plenty of room in my Father's house. And so, uh, on Mother's Day, I want to talk about the way to the Father's house. (laughs) Is that okay? Can I do that? On, On Mother's Day, can I talk about the Father's house? Yes, it's okay. Because we understand that, that the eternal I am is not defined by gender. In other words, uh, God is no more literally male than He's literally a chari- charioteer riding a chariot through the heavens, even though the Bible uses that metaphor as well. We could say it this way, God is as much mother as He is father. And in fact, Perry was alerting to us to that in the 131st Psalm, where the psalmist says that in God I have reposed my soul. Uh, like, a, like a weaned child with its mother. So, uh, so on Mother's Day, uh, I, I can talk about the way to the Father's house. So that when Jesus says, I'm the way, in that passage, well, He's talking about, I'm the way to the Father's house. There's plenty of room. There's room for everyone. But you got to know how to get there. But you know, you know the way to the Father's house. That's what Jesus is saying. And... And Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. Jesus says, yes, you do. You know the way. I am the way. So Jesus is the way to the Father's house. What is the Father's house? The Father's house is the house of love. We constantly have to choose which house we're going to live in. The house of fear or the house of love. That's The journey through life is making that choice, but in times of crisis, it's pronounced that we 
daily, maybe hourly, have to make the choice. Are we going to live in the house of fear or are we going to live in the Father's house, which is the house of love? In the year 1410, 610 years ago, a Russian monk by the name of uh, Andrew Rublev created one of the world's most famous icons. It's in a museum in Moscow now. I have, a, I have my copy of it here. This is the copy of Rublev's famous icon. There's a picture of it for you. Uh, it's, it has two titles. Uh, it's, it's known as either the Hospitality of Abraham or it's also called the Holy Trinity. It's both. Because on one level, what you see is a depiction of the angels who dined with Abraham under the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, but it's also a picture of the Holy Trinity. So that's a beautiful icon. It's famous. People love that. I love that. Uh, in his book on icons, Behold the Beauty of the Lord, Henry Nouwen um, calls this, he describes this icon as the house of love. The house of love. And Nouwen tells us that Rublev created this icon during a time of unrest, political upheaval and unrest and strife in Russia. And he wanted his fellow monks not to go into the direction of fear and hate and reaction. He wanted them to keep their hearts centered on God. And that's why he created this icon. And as you look at it, I'm not going to do a whole teaching on this icon, but it's, there's a lot going on here. But the one thing I want to call your attention to is that there is room at the table for you. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity are right there. But you see, as you look at the icon directly in front of you, there's a place for you. This is a gentle invitation to enter into the life of endless reciprocal love that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Will you accept that invitation? If the question is how can we live in the midst of a world that is marked by fear, hatred, and often violence, and not be destroyed by it, uh, the answer is, you know the way. It's Jesus. Jesus is the way out of that house of fear, with its hate and often its violence, into the Father's house that is the house of love. To live in the world, that is the fallen, broken world system, that is the house of fear, hate, and violence, to live in the world while not belonging to the world, summarizes what the spiritual life is really all about. When we say a spiritual life, what we are really meaning is a life that is not lived in the house of fear with its hate and violence, but a life that is lived in the alternative to that, which is the Father's house that Jesus is the way to. Our true house, where we really belong, our true home, is not the house of fear where the powers of hatred and violence rule, but the house of love where God lives. And Jesus says, I want to take you there. I'll be the way. I'll lead you there. And it's through the spiritual life that we gradually move from the house of fear to the house of love, the Father's house. And that's the goal of spiritual formation. It's that eventually our life would be settled in 
the house of love. Settled in a life that is experiencing the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, wars, big and small, verbal and martial, constantly break out in the house of fear. Where do wars break out? They break out in the house of fear. There's never enough in the house of fear. There are people live in the house of fear with a sense of scarcity. And so the inhabitants of the house of fear have to fight among themselves for their share. And that's how they live. In the house of fear, every member is viewed as a competitor that has to be bested. That's where we fall into the trap that the idea of life is a competitive game. If you think that life is a, is a competition against other people, that's an indication, my dear friend, that you're still living in the house of fear. The house of fear is filled with hate and violence, and friendships are mostly just alliances in the house of fear. Satan, the instigator of accusation and the inciter of anxiety, rules in the house of fear. So if the house of love is the Father's house, uh, the house of fear is the devil's house. The house of fear, unfortunately, is where world history has been played out since the dawn of civilization. But there is an alternative. See, the thing is, the house of fear is a house of lies. It's, it's all one big lie. The house of fear is, is false. It's not true. It's not ultimate reality. It's a pernicious lie given to us by the father of lies. Jesus is the one who is the truth. The Satan, this instigator of accusation, this insider of anxiety, is the father of lies. The house of fear exists because the captives don't know the greatest truth of all. And what is that? God is love. The world, the universe, is not benign, but God is love. Cruel vagaries abound, but God is love. Harms are hidden among us, but God is love. And because of that, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. When Jesus says there's plenty of room in the Father's house, and when Jesus says, I've prepared a place there for you in the Father's house, it's an invitation to make a definitive break from the house of fear and to live in a new place, the house of the Father's love. How do we get to the Father's house of love? This was... This was Thomas's question, and we don't know the way. Jesus says, yes, you do. I am the way. But it's the way that we have to choose by living a life of following Jesus. Jesus as the way is not something that occurs through a once-upon-a-time prayer. That's, no, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is the way in that we choose to follow him, always making course corrections because you know, every day we get off some, but then we come back, and then we get off. But then we, we, we don't follow Jesus, most of us, in a straight line. We zigzag, but keep zigging and keep zagging and keep following Jesus because where he's taking you to is to the Father's house of love. So I want to end this sermon 
by telling a really remarkable story about a man who followed Jesus, about a man who left the house of fear when almost nobody else did. Everybody he knew, almost, stayed in the house of fear, but he left. He left the house of fear and he followed Jesus to the house of love, the house of the Father, and it cost him his life. But now his life is an eternal witness to Jesus and the way of love. His name is Franz Jägerstatter. There's a picture of him. Franz Jägerstatter. He was an Austrian farmer during World War II. In his youth, he was, he was a wild guy. Got in lots of fights, got in trouble with the police, chased women, you know, hard-drinking, hard-fighting kind of guy. He was wild in his youth. Um, but he married a very devout Christian girl. And he seemed to change quite dramatically after his marriage. And he became quite serious about Christian faith. And he was sort of known for this guy that, that loved the Bible and spent a lot of time reading the Scriptures. He became you know, a pillar of the church. He was always there in the church, serving in some capacity. And it transformed him. Now, Austria uh, had been willingly annexed by the Third Reich. And Franz Jägerstatter lives in this village in Austria during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. And he saw it, and he lived through it. And the people around him were celebrating this. Oh, you know, Hitler, you know, the German people are going to return to greatness. And, and they were all on board, but not... Not Franz Jägerstatter. And he would see some of his letters and journals still exist. And he would say, Don't people recognize evil when they see it? Well, the answer to the question is, is when evil comes cloaked in patriotism and nationalism, very often people do not recognize it. And virtually no one in his village recognized what was happening. In 1937, uh, Franz had a dream, and this really affected him. It really altered the course of his life. He said it was a very realistic dream. He said there was this great ominous black train, and thousands of people were crowding to get on this train, despite there being a warning, this train goes to hell. There was a warning, this train goes to hell, but people were fighting to get on the train. And... The train was Nazism. The train was Hitler. And he saw people around him willingly getting on that train. Um, and he spoke out against it. He, would, he just said, he said, Satan, he said, Nazism is satanic. That was his line. And you know, when people going through the streets would say, Heil Hitler, he would not return, or he would sometimes had a, had a retort of his own. You might imagine what that was. And... Uh, he told people, this is satanic, this is demonic, this will, this will, this will, this will take you to hell. And um, so he was ostracized. Uh, people distanced themselves, they made fun of him, they didn't want to be around him in his little village there in Austria. And eventually, uh, 
Franz made up his mind that he would not serve in the military if he was called up. He'd gone and had military training. He'd gone to his training, but then he wasn't called up for active duty because they needed farmers, and you know he'd gone back to his farm. But then finally, uh, the telegram came that he was being called up to serve in the German military. And uh, he made up his mind he wasn't going to do that, despite the fact that um, he, met, he met with his bishop. He met with his, first with his pastor, and then he met with his bishop, and he said, uh, this is evil, and I'm not going to contribute to it. And they tried to talk him out of it. The pastor and the bishop said, no, 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 no. Uh, the church is blessing this, and uh, you, you have a duty to your country. You have a duty to God and country and your, your fatherland. And, and what about your family? You've got to think about your family. You've got three daughters, you know. And if, and if you refuse, you'll surely be put to death. You'll be executed. And then who's going to take care of your family? No, you have the church says so, and, and your community says so, your nation says so. You have a duty to go serve in the German military in this great world war. But Franz Jägerstadter had made up his mind. And so when he was called up for duty in March of 1943, he reported. He went to where they told him to go, but then the first thing they do is these new conscripts take an oath. And it was, a, it was an oath of personal loyalty to Adolf Hitler. And so they're all there, they've reported these new conscripts, and they raise their right hand, and they repeat the oath, pledging personal allegiance to Hitler, and there stood Franz Jägerstatter. And he didn't raise his hand, and he didn't make the oath, and of course he was immediately arrested. He spent five months in prison, and during those five months, people repeatedly came to him and pleaded with him. It's just words. It doesn't matter. Just sign. All I have to do is just sign this document. You, just, you, can have, you can believe whatever you want to believe in your heart. Just sign this document, and then you can go free. And he refused. On August 9th, 1943, the Nazi government of Germany beheaded Franz Jägerstatter. He was faithful to Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And he followed Jesus into the house of love into the Father's house of love, and he wasn't going to live in the house of fear dominated by hate and violence. Franz Jägerstadter joined the company of the martyrs spoken of in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, when it says they overcame the beast by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even unto death. Well, the story of of Jägerstadter, Franz Jägerstadter, uh, was almost entirely unknown outside of this tiny village in Austria until in 1964, Gordon Zahn published a biography on Jägerstadter. And then in 1968, Thomas Merton wrote on Franz Jägerstadter. In 1997, the German government nullified his death sentence. But it was, it was a gesture, it was an acknowledgement that he was right and we were wrong. 
In 2007, Franz Jägerstadter was beatified by the Catholic Church, and he's on his way to sainthood. Uh, by the way, at his beatification, his wife, who was still alive at that time, this is in 2007, his wife and his daughters were all there. And for those that said, you have to, you know, you need to, you have to think about your family, um, his family was taken care of. And they lived in the infinite pride that their husband, their father, had been faithful to the way of Jesus. Um, blessed Franz Jägerstatter now has already had an icon uh, created, an image of him on his way to sainthood, and I like this. There he is, and notice that he holds to the Word of God because this was part of his story. He, he loved the Scriptures. He's holding on to the Word of God, and there uh, you see this, this Nazi demon because that was part of his message. He told people, you know, Nazism is satanic, and there's this little horrified Nazi demon uh, is horrified and afraid of Franz Jägerstatter because he lives by the way of Jesus. Well, I learned about Franz Jägerstadter from the film, A Hidden Life. This is the new Terrence Malick film. Those of you that know me know how I feel about Terrence Malick. I think he's just quite simply the best of the filmmakers. He's the one that gave us the Tree of Life. And you know how I feel about the Tree of Life and how, you know, even here in this sanctuary, I did a whole showing and commentary on it. I'm probably going to have to do it again now with this wonderful, wonderful film that tells the life story of Franz Jägerstatter. It's a true story. And uh, Terrence Malick tells the story in, in the way that only he can. It's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. I've seen it eight times. <laughs> it's like three hours long. So I've spent an entire 24-hour span of my life watching this film. Uh, one time in the art theater in Kansas City, twice on international flights, and five times in my house. Uh, it's, it's Malick's most explicitly Christian film. I mean, it's very strong Christian message. I, I just wish everyone would see it. It's beautiful in every way. Um, I encourage you to try to find that and watch that. I read one critic, though, who, who found fault in the film in that he couldn't understand how Franz Jägerstadter could do what he did. I mean, when everybody else, you know, was going on the train with Hitler, how, do, how, did, how was he able to do this? And when, when I read that, I thought, did the guy even watch the film? Uh, Terrence Malick goes out of his way to show you and to tell you where Franz got his courage, got his strength to be able to do so. The church and the crucifix are, in, are constantly in the background of the film. I mean, there's a church and a crucifix. This, what you see there, that's the opening scene. Well, the, the, the film opens with archival footage of Hitler's rise to power, black and white. But then when the actual film begins, that's the first scene. And you see Franz and his wife toiling in their fields as farmers, and there lurking in the background is the church. And the, the church or a crucifix appears in over 100 scenes in this film. So... Terrence Malick is making no secret about where he found his strength through the message of Jesus Christ. And then there's the church bells. And if you, if you view it, just pay attention to how often you hear church bells. The very first time that you hear church bells, it's Franz himself goes into the church, and he's the one ringing the church bell. And indeed he did. He was ringing the bell, trying to wake people up. 
and then you hear the bells throughout the film, and then the final time that you hear the church bells, they're tolling for Franz Jägerstatter, a martyr for Christ. The film closes with this quote from George Eliot. It's where the film gets its title. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistorical acts, meaning the good of the world is partly dependent on acts that never get written down in history. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. These are the ones who found their way to the Father's house. May we be in their number. Amen.